for 25 months running now, the average hourly wage rate in the U.S. economy after inflation has been negative. In other words, living standards are shrinking. Welcome, everybody, to Conversations That Matter. I'm your host, Alex Newman, our guest today, very special guest. Uh, he is the former director of the Office of Management and Budget. That was during uh, the administration of President Ronald Reagan, actually one of the most important federal positions that most people have never heard of, uh, hugely important position. Uh, now, David's got a, a relatively new book. It's called The Great Money Bubble, Protect Yourselves from the Coming Inflation Storm. David, it's great to have you. Um, you know, I want to start with the question that's on everybody's mind lately. We've got policymakers in D.C. talking about it. We've got the IMF talking about it, uh, and that is the apparent trend toward de-dollarization. It looks like more and more governments and central banks are moving away from the dollar and toward uh, settling international transactions in either their own currencies or the euro or the, the yen or the pound uh, or even the Chinese yuan. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, are we going to de-dollarize? Will the dollar lose its place as the global reserve? Well, uh, I'm not surprised it's happening. After all, for years and years, the Fed has been flooding the financial system, which is global, uh, there's no walls at the uh, coasts at the border, uh, with dollars. There's more dollars in the world than people really want uh, to uh, have. And as a result, uh, people are looking for alternatives that have a better chance of maintaining their value over time. So um, that's the first point. The second point is I'm not sure it would be entirely a bad thing because the so-called exorbitant privilege we have from being the reserve currency of the world, and frankly, we can go into a discussion of that because I think in today's world of floating money, it doesn't, a reserve currency really doesn't mean that much. But in any event, uh, the fact that the rest of the world holds a lot more dollars, it's about 55% of the central bank reserves of the world than they might otherwise want to hold uh, is just a gift to Congress to make it easy for them to spend and spend and borrow and build up the uh, public debt uh, to the point that we're at 31 billion today, or trillion, excuse me, 31 trillion today. And they're having a debate about uh, you know paying our bills in not cutting any spending. <laughs> you know, that's pretty pathetic, but it's, uh, you know, one unfortunate side benefit uh, of being the reserve currency. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, clucking going on among certain people that this is a bad thing, uh, that it, uh, you know, is a measure of, uh, uh, you know, uh, poor policy in Washington and so forth. Yeah, that's true, but it's been true for a long time, and it really doesn't matter uh, at the end of the day. The only way we're going to bring inflation under control and get capitalist prosperity back to America is to start, uh, you know, adopting policies that are based on sound economics. <laughs> you know, we have to balance the budget. We have to stop spending and borrowing. We have to have a house cleaning at the Fed and get rid of all these money printers and Keynesians who have just flooded uh, the system uh, with uh, freshly minted 
U.S. dollars that are, uh, you know, snatched from thin air. So um, in some sense, this whole uh, debate about, uh, you know, the dollar and the dollar losing its place is uh, there's a silver lining to it. Maybe it'll wake up uh, the politicians, the policymakers in Washington to understand we've been living way, way beyond our means and uh, we're going to have to pay the piper. So it's about time, uh, you know, we face the facts, the realities and uh, change policy quite dramatically. Well, you alluded to this, but I want to dig a little bit deeper. You talked about the the ongoing budget debates that are taking place in Washington, D.C. right now. Republicans are talking about cutting, you know, maybe one hundred and thirty billion dollars, which, uh, you know, compared to the size of the budget, we're really not talking about much. Um, and then, you know, the Democrats and, and uh, President Biden are acting like this would be some sort of catastrophic loss and it was going to hurt people. Uh, what are your views on this uh, budget debate? Uh, is this serious? Do we need to have more drastic cuts in spending? Would it really be catastrophic like Biden and the Democrats are suggesting? It wouldn't be catastrophic. And yes, we need far more serious cuts than they're talking about. But I think the fact that uh, Biden and the Democrats and much of official Washington is now, ra- you know, waving the bloody shirt about, uh, you know, the debt ceiling and uh, the uh, inappropriateness of these cuts uh, is just a measure of, uh, you know, how far off the deep end we've gone. I've looked at it. Here are the facts. You know, in Washington, they like to talk about 10 year projections because that makes the numbers sound bigger in terms of what they're cutting. What they leave out of the discussion is the underlying numbers of what's there if we do nothing. Well, here's what's there. On a 10-year basis, revenue would be about 60 trillion and spending would be about 80 trillion. So what's really there is 20 trillion more of red ink which is to say we don't have a 31 trillion public debt, really. Implicitly, we got a 50 trillion plus of public debt because that's all baked into the cake. It's going to happen unless Congress makes sweeping changes, which are not anywhere in prospect. And that's where we get to this Republican plan, which I have to admit is better than nothing. But not much better. If you take that 80 billion of spending, just under 50, 80 trillion, I'm sorry, of built in spending. In other words, that's what will happen if everybody sits on their hands or Congress took a sabbatical for the next 10 years. But if you take that 80 trillion, nearly 50 trillion, 48 trillion is entitlements and mandatory spending. That will happen come rain or shine, come hell or high water, even if Congress uh, doesn't pass another piece of legislation. Now, what are they proposing to do about that? It's actually 48 trillion of built in spending over a decade. Well, 20 trillion of it is Social Security and Medicare. You know, uh, nearly half. What are the Republicans saying about that? Nothing. They're they're saying we won't touch it. They're saying we pledge to keep it totally intact. So set that aside. There's another eight trillion that consists of means tested entitlements like Medicare and food stamps and so forth. 
how much are the Republicans proposing to cut from that eight and a half trillion of the lesser entitlements, the mean, means tested ones? 150 billion, that's 1.2%, okay. Uh, so how do they pretend then that they've got a big spending uh, reduction and why are why is Washington you know, so up in arms about uh, the coming debate? Well, it's because they're doing a fake cut in which they add up 10 years worth of savings from assuming that annual appropriated spending, that is the part that is an entitlement mandatory for defense and non-defense will be rolled back to uh, 2022 levels and then frozen there at a 1% increase year by year. Well, that's a fine theory, but it's never going to happen. That's the first point. And second, most of the savings they're talking about, the three trillion, is calculated if you do what I just described will happen in year uh, two through year 10, which they're doing nothing about. In other words, we get to year two or year four or year five, and there's an emergency, there's a COVID crisis, there's a war somewhere, uh, there's a huge hurricane disaster somewhere. And so, uh, you know, they set aside all of the uh, assumed uh, freezes and cuts uh, that were um, uh, uh, put into place a couple of years ago. That's what they did in 2011, by the way. I think a lot of people will remember we had a big showdown and uh, debt ceiling crisis in 2011. And uh, part of that was uh, basically a settlement in which the same uh, area of the budget, discretionary spending, you know, for domestic programs and defense was going to be essentially frozen for 10 years. They didn't come close to that. In other words, the savings that were supposed to come from that, uh, you know, more than two trillion, none of which actually materialized because as they got to, let's say, 2015, 2017, 2019, 2020, there was always some reason uh, to uh, set aside uh, the um, assumed cuts that were made years and years ago. In other words, we're in a real pickle. We're in very bad shape where one party pretends you could just keep borrowing on an open-ended basis and then uh, kind of rants and raves about, quote, paying the bills. That's the Democrats. And the other party at least raises the issue, we can't keep doing this, but then comes up with this uh, tepid sort of fake uh, plan to save uh, trillions, which in my judgment would be lucky, you know, to save uh, 150 billion over 10 years against a 20 trillion level of red ink uh, built into the budget. So uh, that's a lot of uh, information, maybe a lot of numbers, but I think it's a pretty, um, fair uh, 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 summary of uh, how dire the situation actually is. So what happens next, David? I mean, uh, are, are they going to be able to continue doing this? Or are they going to be forced by rising interest rates and the refusal of foreigners to keep buying debt to, to stop it? I mean, does this end in a, in a train wreck? Or, or and, yeah, and how do they I, do this politically? Yeah, well, I think we're heading for a train wreck. Uh, but it's a question of, uh, you know, how many collisions occur as we go down the track. 
and uh, you know uh, how badly it uh, ricochets against uh, you know the average guy on Main Street. And it's going to be uh, bad. Now I think uh, there'll be a lot of huffing and puffing, and we'll get to somewhere in May or early June, and we'll uh, arrive at what's called the X hour when they can't uh, borrow anymore because they've exhausted. Uh, the current debt ceiling and all the tricks they use uh, to temporarily borrow. And uh, what will happen then is one of two things. Uh, one, they'll make an 11th hour compromise in which even uh, some of the uh, meaningful cuts in the Republican plan will be set aside. Like they're, they're proposing to stiffen the work test. And I agree with this for Medicaid and uh, food stamps, that's where they get the $150 billion of savings uh, from these programs. Uh, the Democrats will never buy that, and a lot of the squishy uh, Republicans, you know, uh, uh, won't either. So uh, they'll probably uh, basically say we're going to cut a lot of the unused budget authority that was put in place for the COVID emergency. And that'll sound like a decent sized number, but here's the truth of that. It wasn't going to be spent anyway. If it hasn't been spent by now, it basically was going to lapse uh, and uh, you know disappear into the maw of this vast federal budget. So those will be quasi phony cuts. They'll probably agree to something there. And then they'll pretend they're gonna have some kind of modified freeze on discretionary spending which isn't binding, which really has never proven to save anything, and uh, they'll call it a day, and then we'll be back in the soup again uh, a few months down the road. That's where we are. Uh, we are not um, governing this country uh, with any kind of uh, integrity, uh, any kind of honesty, any kind of seriousness on the fiscal issues. They're just uh, assuming that since we've gotten this far, you know, when, when I was budget director, we had to cross the one trillion public debt uh, mark. And that was, uh, you know, uh, pretty traumatic at the time. We're at 31 trillion today, all in one guy's lifetime. And, and somehow uh, the assumption is, well, we've got 31 trillion. Why not 50? Why not 70? Well, the answer is we got we got from one trillion to 31 trillion in essentially uh, four decades, because during that period, the Fed went off the deep end, uh, printing uh, uh, money, that is monetizing the debt, buying up the treasury notes and the treasury bonds and the treasury bills, and uh, therefore relieved what would have otherwise been enormous pressure in the bond markets on yields and interest rates and would have choked off the economy long ago. So the Fed rides to the rescue, prints a massive amount of money, defers the day of reckoning, and now we got uh, inflation out of control, and we have a Fed that's stuck between a rock and a hard place. It has to stop printing money. It has to let rates get to something that's you know rational or uh, within reason. Uh, but uh, that means that they're not financing the public debt and therefore, the $2 trillion of new debt that's going to happen in the next year uh, alone uh, will uh, you know, flood into the bond pits and cause uh, interest rates uh, to uh, rise 
even more than they are already. And we have an economy that, uh, you know, is so brittle, is so fragile that the needed uh, normalization of interest rates, they talk about raising rates, they're not raising them, they're normalizing them from zero. <laughs> I mean, that wasn't a rate, that wasn't a policy, that was, wasn't sustainable, that was an economic uh, joke. And yet they did it, and now we got rates back to 5%. Okay, fine, they're raising it uh, to 5.25. Uh, inflation is still running at 6%, which means that after inflation, the interest rate on uh, federal funds is negative 1%. Well, you're never going to bring inflation under control when uh, the uh, real rate, so-called, or the inflation-adjusted rate is still negative. And yet there's all this squawking, you know, all of this uh, uh, table pounding from both Washington, uh, Wall Street and soon Washington about uh, raising rates when uh, they've just begun <laughs> what's going to be needed uh, to bring uh, inflation under control. Wow. Um, folks, stay with us. We're going to be right back. We're going to continue talking to David Stockman about what you can do to protect yourself from this coming uh, disaster with the inflation and the out-of-control spending. We'll be right back. Here's the news, Dad. Is it, son? Is it? What about this one, Dad? Nope. It's hard to tell what's real and what's fake these days. There's just too much baloney out there. At The New American, they cut through the baloney and give me the truth. The truth is hard to find, but The New American has it. Check it out at thenewamerican.com. Uh, we were just talking about inflation before we went to break um, and, and how really uh, inflation is still quite high. Uh, what do you think is, ha is going to happen with inflation? Is the Federal Reserve going to have to keep raising interest rates to bring this under control? Uh, and, and what does that look like? Yes, I do. And I might just note that when we printed the book last fall, we called it the coming inflation storm. Well, I think the storm has arrived. You know, when uh, we have inflation in the six, seven and eight percent range as the government measures it and probably in double digits, if you took all the gimmicks uh, out of uh, the CPI and other indices that they publish, uh, you have, um, you know, a 40-year high in terms of inflation, and that is devastating to Main Street of America and to average families where wages aren't keeping up, okay? Uh, you know, if you look at the numbers and ask, what is the hourly wage gain after inflation? You will find that for 25 months running now, the average hourly wage rate in the U.S. economy after inflation has been negative. In other words, living standards are shrinking. Buying power of the paychecks, and a lot of families have two or three uh, paychecks just trying to keep up and, you know, side hustles and everything else, um, they're, they're losing ground. So that's how serious this inflation is. The Fed finally woke up uh, to the disaster it had created after years and years of, uh, you know, zero cost uh, money. That's the target they had uh, pinned into place. And uh, for a while, uh, insisted it was transitory when 
rates uh, hit 9% last June, inflation hit 9%. They finally had to uh, concede they were dead wrong on that. And they've been scrambling since uh, last March to try to uh, catch up. They're still way behind the curve. And uh, therefore, the battle against inflation has got a long way to go because they created so much excess credit in liquidity over the 10, 20 year period uh, when they had their foot on the monetary accelerator. One measure of that is when we look at uh, cash balances of US households. Uh, surprisingly, the Federal Reserve does publish a lot of pretty good statistics. And one of them is a measure of what's in savings accounts, checking accounts, money market funds, and cash, you know, uh, greenbacks uh, that are in the wallets and pocketbooks uh, of American households. And what we find is that normally or historically that be before the COVID uh, thing and then the massive money printing that that triggered, uh, you know, the normal level of cash balances in the household sector was about $12 trillion. It sounds like a lot. Well, it's at about 18 trillion now. So in that short period of time, when they pulled out all the stops after March, 2020 and flooded the zone uh, with uh, 120 billion a month of new money, that's what they were printing, 120 billion a month. We now have a household sector that's sitting, floating on, I would say uh, about 5 trillion of extra or uh, abnormal cash that can be spent even as they get behind on current wages and uh, current income. And as a result of that, inflation is proving to be far more stubborn than it might have been under historic cycles, because this time the Fed went so far off the deep end with its money printing, not only after the great financial crisis, and uh, you know they persisted in that for years and years, but then they went, they doubled and tripled down in, 19, in 2020 and 2021. They have so waterlogged the economy with excess cash and liquidity that it's going to be one hellacious uh, struggle to, to try to bring inflation under control and the uh, excess spending and demand uh, that is uh, stemming from all of this uh, artificial stimulus. In other words, they, they say they've ended the stimulus phase. They have raised rates. They're no longer buying bonds, but they're stuck with the legacy of the huge overhang of excess credit and uh, cash that was created uh, over the 10 or 12 years up to uh, March uh, 2022. So we have a badly distorted, uh, a badly deflated, uh, unsustainable economy, and the Fed is not nearly uh, reached the success point where it can take its foot off the brake or even stop raising rates. Now, they're going to pretend they're going to pause. I would expect that to happen very soon. But when inflation stays uh, at 5, 6, 7%, way above 
their so-called 2% target, they're going to have no choice but to, uh, you know, increase rates uh, yet uh, even more than they have already. Ultimately, we have to reach the point where when you subtract inflation from the overnight rate, the, the federal funds rate, the uh, money market rate, you get a positive number of 2 or 3%. And uh, we're a long, long way from that, obviously, if you look at where we are today. David, we're down to just a few minutes left. And I know you you address this in your book, but how does a a normal investor, a a normal family, how do do they protect themselves from these things that are happening and and what you expect is coming? Well, I would say first, you you have to get a grasp on the big picture. And the big picture is that whatever happened during the last uh, 5, 10, 30 years is not going to happen in the period ahead or even in the decade ahead. In other words, we had a massive financial party because Washington was spending and borrowing like there was no tomorrow and the Fed was printing the money and Wall Street was booming based on the uh, artificial liquidity and easy uh, debt that was being created by the Fed. Uh, Corporations were borrowing hand over fist, not to increase their productive capacity, but to buy back their stock and push, uh, uh, you know, their share prices up. Well, all of this made for uh, pretty uh, easy uh, times uh, and a lot of unsustainable wealth. And people got used to that. But the fundamental starting point is the party is over. And uh, therefore, uh, the stock market and the bond market are dramatically overpriced. Real estate is way, way overvalued. And therefore, the conventional assets that people wanted to accumulate are not going to appreciate and likely going to fall in value quite substantially. So the first thing is, Get out of the uh, asset markets if you can, because they're going down, not up. The second thing is that uh, during that big party and boom, debt was so cheap that it was a smart thing to own appreciated assets by borrowing cheap money, uh, you know, to fund them. The opposite will be true going forward. Interest rates are going to continue to normalize Debt is going to become more and more expensive and more importantly, uh, harder and harder to refinance as we get into the uh, full extent of this crisis. So the second uh, kind of maxim is reduce debt whenever, wherever, and however possible. If you've got big winners because you bought the uh, the uh, tech stocks uh, early on cash out the winnings and pay down any debt you have. Uh, even in- debt, David, uh, even debt that's at a very low fixed interest rate, would you get out of that as well? I mean, say you have a mortgage for 30 years and you borrowed it at two and a half or three percent. Would you get out of that as well? Well, if you got 10 uh, years or 20 years to run on the mortgage, no, I wouldn't. But if you've got credit card debt or if you've got mortgage debt that's going to be required to be refinanced uh, mm-hmm. in the next two, five or years or even a decade, I would say uh, pay it off. 
because, uh, you know, it's going to get harder and harder. It's nice to have a two and a half or three percent mortgage rate today. But if in two years it's going to roll over to seven percent, that's the reality that you're dealing with. And you might as well get started on the problem. Now, also, uh, people obviously have developed living standards, uh, uh, spending styles, levels. And I think going forward, it's, income is going to be a lot harder to come by. Uh, so uh, as uh, unappetizing as it may uh, sound, uh, you know, people have to pull in, uh, pull in their horns. Uh, they're going to have to uh, become, uh, you know, adopt austerity to some substantial degree in order uh, to build up cash because there are some pretty uh, rainy days uh, coming down the road. Powerful stuff, David. Uh, we are out of time, but uh, your book, uh, The Great Money Bubble, Protect Yourself from the Coming Inflation Storm. What's the best way to get that? Well, uh, it's on Amazon. Uh, it's in uh, most of the bookstores. So uh, you just Google, uh, uh, you know, Google The Great Money Bubble uh, and my name, and uh, you should be able to find it pretty easily. Excellent. David Stockman, former director of the OMB, New York Times bestselling author. Uh, also, you do the uh, David Stockman's Contra Corner. That's a subscriber advisory on uh, investing, global economics and public policy. Thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, you folks out there, thank you for watching. We appreciate you tuning in. I'm Alex Newman for the New American Magazine. This is Conversations That Matter. Till next time, God bless you all. All right, parents, listen up. We've all seen the countless examples of how radical, radical leftists have been destroying American schools. It's no longer just about the terrible math and reading levels. Now, radical left teachers birthed from liberal universities are forcing gender indoctrination in, in kindergarten. They're teaching lessons on white guilt. Freedom Project Academy has perfected live on, online learning over the course of a decade. I get a ton of great feedback about this program, a ton. They're built on Judeo-Christian values, a classical curriculum. What does that mean? It means they're taught, your children are ta taught the way that the founding generations of the country. My own son Noah did Freedom Project Academy for uh, several years uh, when he was younger. The more we tell our friends about these things, the more people will get on board. And I, and I believe that we can be the catalyst to some real change. We must save the West. Our way of life and our culture is under attack. And because of patriots like you and your project, I have optimism for the future.